0: Welcome to episode 135 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Support for this episode comes from Jackson Hole Real Estate Associates, the region's largest and most dynamic real estate company in the Valley. For more information and to view current listings, visit jhrea.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle and compost. Avoid using single-use products whenever possible. And remember to bring your reusable bags while shopping. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephen Clark Abrams, your host. I really want to say thank you to everybody who listens each week and all of you new listeners. Please get out there and share this podcast. That's how we can all help make an impact in other people's lives. My mission is to bring you fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. Those people are sharing their stories. These are the same people we see each day walking around this town. I feel we all have a story to share and I wanna bring you stories which you will connect with and add good energy to your day. Sharing stories allows us to all learn and grow so we may all live full lives. My guest today is Ian McGregor, Ian is one of the rare folks in our community who was born and raised right here in Jackson Hole, born at St. John's Hospital. Ian has a passion for sustainable agriculture and helping the community learn how they can create their own farmstead, which Ian will explain. In past years, Ian was one of the creators of Roots Kitchen and Cannery, which focused on creating and selling food, which was produced from products made right here in the area. Now Ian has started a sustainable cider works named Farmstead Ciders. He teaches about food diversity and biodiversity. Ian's gonna explain to us what makes Farmstead Ciders a sustainable operation. I know you'll enjoy learning about Ian's ideas and what drives his passion for agriculture. Appreciate well, it. Ian, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. Wonderful to see you again. It's been quite some time since we uh, visited a little bit about your your um, your cider company.
1: Yeah, yeah, time flies.
0: It, it does fly. In. So, Ian, let's start off by you sharing with the listeners how are you connected to Jackson Hole. Let's let's start there.
1: Sure, that's a good good place to start since I got my start here. I. Uh, <laughs> I was born 1986 in St. John's Hospital, and I always tell people that I was born during a 10-foot blizzard, and my parents had to stay an extra day at the hospital. And you know, who knows it was actually 10 feet, but I've always I've always felt a connection to the extreme climate that we live in, and whether that's from you know a birth story or just the fact that I grew up in this town that throws a lot of different things at you, Um, it's been a big part of me growing up. And then as I've gone out into the world, being from Wyoming and from Jackson has been a big part of my identity, you know, going to college in, in upstate New York, or, or learning about agriculture in California, you know, it kind of set, has always given me an opportunity to have a conversation about Wyoming.
0: Well, I love that you've been to other places. And but now you've come back home to roost and start some yeah. business.
1: Um, where did you go to college? And in- in New York, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Upstate New York. A little school called Skidmore College. Uh-huh. And I uh, got a small scholarship there and just wanted to try a, a totally different different lifestyle than what I'd I'd known the whole way through. So took a took a chance and, and went for it and wanted to transfer the right, you know, right away because everything was so new. But after I sunk in through that first semester, I realized, you know, there's a lot to learn and a lot to to see in this in in such a cool but somewhat unique and or somewhat similar state to here, upstate New York, lots of forests, lots of uh, smaller mountains, but mountains nonetheless, lots of bears. So uh, it felt mm. kind of right at home after that. And eventually, I, I met my wife there, so my future wife. And so that uh, was a good move in the end. That's fabulous. And you mentioned something about California. Where, where did you live in California? What took you there, and what did you do there? Yeah, I uh, well, I went to college in New York, and I got a glimpse of agriculture of a different kind of agriculture than we see, you know, growing up here in Jackson, Uh, you know, you have a lot of experience with cattle ranches around here and uh, you know, I've worked a number of brandings in my life enough to know what it's all about. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't know if that's quite the right type of agriculture for me or, or profession or lifestyle. Um, So I went to college majored in English and then noticed apple orchards everywhere in upstate New York. And the Mm. orchard setting was something that just like captivated me and uh, was was, I would say, fortunate enough to graduate from college uh, in December of 2008, right, when everything went down um, for the financial crisis. And I realized, hey, there's no pressure to go out and get a job with my English major. Hmm. I'm going to go out and get jobs in in the agricultural world. And that's what eventually brought me to California is I wanted to learn how to make wine. I wanted to learn how to grow perennial orchard uh, and vineyard style crops, uh, as well as you know, raise livestock and, and veg- vegetables. Uh, and California seemed like just the best place to do all that under one roof. And uh, when I got a foot in the door in some vineyards out there by just working a harvest season when they really need a lot of help, uh, I, I was able to translate that into a, a number of different jobs working for really cool diversified agricultural uh, projects that had uh, one one place in particular had everything under the sun you could want to eat from heirloom grains that we would mill on site to, you know, unique varieties of, of uh, fruit tree. I, I remember there being 15 different types of peach in just the peach section. And then, you know, multiply that out through every fruit you can grow in California, which is darn near every fruit. Um, and we had animals, there was vineyards up on the hillsides and olive orchard. It was, I call it the university of farming, where I, where I just had a, I started as a worker and, and worked my way up to be the, the manager of the whole place after a couple of years. And I learned so much there and I was like, wow, this is what I want to do with my life. But I also knew I didn't want to live where I, where, where it was sunny for 150 days in a row. I was no, like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I honestly got sick of it. I couldn't believe it. But I told people, you know, I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, another bluebird day. And uh, I missed clouds and stuff. And so that's kind of what precipitated the return back. And. When you were in California
0: and, and in New York, you said that you learned or were exposed and learned to a different type of agriculture than what we're used to here in Jackson. So for people that might not be as familiar with the type of agriculture that we have here in Jackson and in this area, how does it differ?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing dichotomy of, of climate and how climate dictates the food that a region eats. And, you know, cuisine in general, as a term kind of refers to what type of food can be produced from what grows and, and thrives in any given area. And so you, you look at Jackson. In this high altitude, we're known for really, really long summer days. So big, tall grasslands, and with that come all sorts of grazing animals. Over the years, and you know, with cattle being at the forefront of the agricultural efforts here in, in Teton County specifically, and as you look around, you realize you know you hardly see much in the way of other livestock, and you really don't see much in, beyond uh, pasture and hayfield. And so it's it's a very narrow slice of the agricultural pie. And from growing up, I realized, you know, this is what has to grow here. This is what the climate allows. And so only by traveling to other places did I get to glimpse different styles of agriculture, say a hundred year old orchard, you know, that's been in the Hudson Valley for you know many generations, or maybe it's row crop vegetable production in California where they have really great soils for it. And so I said, oh, I've got to go to these places to learn what else is out there. The connection with the land always stuck with me, but the type of connection was I've fostered a, a deeper connection in those different settings. And you know, learning how to make wine and learning how to grow wine grapes among many other things in California made me think a lot about, you know, where do I want to live? How do I want to pursue this career? And Jackson didn't really pop up, you know, it doesn't pop to mind as a place to be able to go put all that I've learned to use. And I just, you know, I kind of was looking everywhere, but the most obvious place, you know, and huh. um, and then when I actually, had, I, I moved back to New York for a short time in between California and here and rekindled my relationship with my college girlfriend who, you know, we, we hung out in New York for a year and then we decided to, to move somewhere. And she said, actually, she's like, how about we move back to Jackson? And. I just said, well, you know, I I guess I could try and make something work there and and use my fermentation skills maybe, but probably not. I'll probably have to maybe grow some vegetables and focus on that. And it wasn't until we fully moved back here that I just started realizing how how varied the plants and um, specifically apple trees are in the world and how some are just perfectly adapted to this climate. And the light bulb clicked. I could use all the skills I've put together over, over these years. You know, English, I could write lots of things trying to start a business. Um, and then uh, learning about orchards, I, I could I could apply that to these big open fields where there's actually pretty good soil. And uh, fermentation, which is the transformation of something that, you know, tastes and, and looks a certain way. And it, it can go through an alchemy to become something completely different. And, and uh, that transformation is really where farmstead was born and where you know i was able to piece together the many components of my of my skill sets and 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 passions all into one little package that's cool that's
0: so cool i love it i love it you you are a thinker and very creative because so many people come here and they're like they just wait tables or work in a hotel or construction or landscaping but you're like wait a second I have skills. I'm going to apply them to this area.
1: Good for you, Ian. Good for you. Thanks. Thanks. And it's one of those things where it's like I have some skills, but really the coolest thing is, yeah, applying them to the area. Then the area speaks back and says, "Well, this is how it should manifest itself. How your skills can can be become something else, you know, and and, and evolve." I was like, "Whoa, cool." <laughs> I
0: I love it. I love it. How many trees does somebody need to have to be considered an
1: orchard? Oh, good question, man. I would say that um, you know, if you have two, you could you could probably make the argument. Yes. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Yeah, I have got an orchard. <laughs> there you go. i, I feel like, I'm I, I'm willing to you know spread that that uh, umbrella as wide as it'll go. But to be honest, we've planted here, you know, slowly started with a couple of trees here and there, you know, five six years ago, and we're up to about 50 trees that are you know, close to producing fruit within a couple of years. And then we've got 300 trees that are just tiny little immature ones. But the coolest thing about those trees is we've grafted over the local varieties that we've discovered, you know, snip a branch from one of those trees that's thriving in Raptor J and slice a little pie piece out of the the bud and, and wedge that into a new rootstock, you know, a little six inch pencil thick piece of stick and water it well, and that produces that same apple that I cut from Raptor J. And so, all the varieties that were that were growing from such a small stock are are really hyper local uh, trees that have proven that they they maybe not even it's not even that they don't they don't mind the climate. A lot of them, I think, really thrive in this climate because of the the temperature swings and the hot and the cold and the the long days and and such. So. Yeah, orchards can have a whole spectrum of of size and and makeup. Um, you know, you, you cruise the world and you, you see monocultures, and you say, okay, that is one thousand acres of Gala apple, and that is that has been something that you know people make money from it and have a great uh, product. And I don't want to knock that at all, but. That is one sort of kind of an orchard. And then other kinds of orchards are planted from seed, which is another thing we're doing as well, where we just throw all the apple pressing pulp that we're when we're done with it and throw it in a nice long row along the fence here and see what comes up. And mm. uh, that's, you know, a, a really pretty wide spectrum from approaches to orcharding. And that's sort of where we're trying to push the envelope in the other direction.
0: That's cool. That's great. A few years ago, gosh, it's probably been six years ago i and between my neighbor's house i took down a partial fence and i went to porcupine creek the local uh nursery and and they said we saw some apple trees i said well those really grow apples out here and they're not crab apples and they said yes suppose they will and it only took like five years to get apples but In between there, there was probably two years where the moose ate them in the winter and the spring time, but now they're not getting to them. So they're able to bud. And last year, I bet we got about five pounds of apples. Nice. And were they good size, like
1: sweet eating ones, you know, like normal eating apples?
0: They are normal eating apples. They're not as sweet as like a honey crisp by any means, but they're good apples. We'll have to get you some this fall.
1: Yeah. I'd love to check it out. I mean, we've been, since we've been doing this, we've been uh, finding so many people like yourself who planted a tree they got, they got one at a nursery or, or just were feeling inspired in the spring and said, Hey, I got a spot for this. And then a lot of times, you know, the, the animals play a huge role in us forgetting about them or, you know, maybe saying like, well, do your best, you know, out there trying to survive. And, uh, and then, the trees that do survive show, they're like, we can cope with this. And so it sounds like, you know, porcupines a great start because they, they have, they have such awareness of this climate and of mm-hmm. what the challenges are. Uh, but man, you go, cl- you go crawling through the neighborhoods in Jackson, you find these trees coming out of the woodwork. Some are, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, putting off 600 pounds of fruit. Huh. Um, and it's just it's astounding. And you realize they've survived some of those cold, cold winters that we all remember going back and uh, looked as healthy as can be because of it. And that, that right there, you know, like you said, they're maybe not the sweetest apple as not as sweet as a honey crisp, but each one has such a unique character. I've even tasted salty apples um, Mm. and, and apples that have like a cheese, almost, you know, funk flavor to them. And you're like, you know, Maybe that's not what I want to bite into on a hot summer day, but they are perfect additions to cider. And that variety, that diversity, is it's maybe a challenge from a logistical perspective of us making our ciders, but it's a total boon to the product at the end, making it very unique and set apart from other cider makers and ciderese in the country. Uh, so I love that variety, and I love when you guys get get, get excited and plant one in the backyard or, or two and uh, yeah. Yeah, plant an orchard.
0: Well, they said that we needed two for the cross-pollination of it, so that's why we did two. Uh, Well, I I think it's great that you mentioned ciders because this is an easy way, a great way to transition into what you're doing now, but I'd love for you to share before you talk about what you're doing now, what was one or two of the things that you did when you first moved back here? Because I remember seeing you at the
1: farmer's market. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'm glad you brought that up for sure you know, in between moving to California after college, I started a a stand selling uh, just lettuce greens from our garden and biscuits in the morning, like hot uh, bacon or sausage, egg and cheese biscuits. But I would, I would mix the sausage and the egg and the cheese into the dough and then bake it as a whole thing instead of a sandwich. And I'd sell that along with salad greens. And I think I made like $40 the first market. And I said, this is probably not worth the 10 hours I spent putting into it. Um, but every market after that kept getting better as people figured out who I was. And then my good friend from growing up here, a kid who I was on the Nordic ski team with, Orion Bellarado, he walked by one day and he said, oh man, what are you, Ian, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm selling baked goods and salad greens. What else would I be doing? <laughs> and he said, oh, hey man, I love making pies. Maybe I could bring some pies next week and join you. And I said, sure, why not? And that next week he showed up with 25 pies and I was like, dude, there's no way you're going to sell all these. I, I, I don't know what to tell you, but as you can imagine, if you know, Orion, we, we sold all 25 of them within a couple hours. And I realized, Hey, this guy's really got, he's onto something. So from then on, we teamed up on baking things and working in the garden and selling whatever we could produce with our hands and with our knowledge. Uh, to people in town, and that's when I really got hooked with on selling things that I made to people and, and sharing that with with people. And Orion, same. Uh, from that business, he, he developed a canning business, Roots Kitchen and Cannery, which does jams and pickles and uh, all sorts of different delicious canned goods. And I moved out to California and started making wine, and he kept the business going. So as soon as I moved back, you know, about six years ago, I. Orion and I started plotting on ways to, to collaborate with our ability to stay up all night regularly and function the next day. And so we <laughs> said, hey, let's start a business because that's going to happen a lot. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, we started sort of spitballing ideas about how to incorporate agriculture. And then Orion got married and he put on his registry a small fruit press that it's like a little old wooden basket press that you crank down Uh and he put it on his registry as a whim and someone bought it for him as a, 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 I was like, dude, I got the fruit press. And so that fall we went out and foraged a ton of apples from trees that were growing around, uh, right down by the snow King ball field and, um, pressed our first batches of cider. Um, since I'd left the wine industry it was my first time fermenting in, in two years. And we were hooked right away after that. And couldn't really stop. I mean, we, I remember we brought the press over to a friend's house and we're trying to press the apple kind him up enough. And so he had just got his old cabin. So we s- screwed the press into his hardwood floor and just cranked on as much as we could, trying to squeeze out like tiny droplets of juice out of this apple <laughs> that we hadn't properly smashed. And, uh, you know, it was a big evolution learning curve. But, you know, once we got through some of the initial steps, it was like, oh, this, there's so much similar to winemaking where you're just taking fruit and letting it ferment uh, using e- either add yeast or like we do, we just naturally ferment things and let the yeast that are on the fruit do their thing. But the kindred skills and, and process to winemaking is, it's uncannily similar. And so I started to really get in the swing of, of fermentation after the first couple batches uh, and realized that all my experience in wineries was going to come back to help.
0: Uh, this i love it you guys are hilarious
1: <laughs> Yes, you
0: guys are great
1: total, total just uh just opportunists really we we're just cruising around with our eyes open that's kind of all, all we've ever done and, uh, you're, you're thinkers and it's, it's for sure well. Well, you thanks. guys are definitely
0: thinkers ian we're going to take a quick break for, to get a word from one of our sponsors and then we're going to be back and you can share with everybody now what you're doing Jackson Hole Real Estate Associates is the market leader in Jackson Hole, providing every client with unparalleled professionalism and breakthrough marketing strategies. Their organization is comprised of dedicated and experienced real estate professionals, and they offer a collection of some of the most sought after properties in the Valley. For more information on buying, selling, or market stats in Jackson Hole, visit jhrea.com or call. 307-733-6060. 307-733-6060. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling would like to remind you to bring your reusable bags when you go shopping for groceries or at your favorite store around town. Reusable bags are good for the environment and your wallet. Wash your bags frequently and bag your items when possible. We've already helped remove millions of single-use bags from the waste stream. Now let's reduce the amount of paper bags purchased. Food waste composting in addition to yard waste composting is available at the transfer station facilities. Call 733-7678 for up-to-date hours of operation. Ian, welcome back. Just before the break, you were telling me about your buddy, Orion, how you guys, um, started experimenting with fermentation and you were finding fruit here in the valley, some apples. And and I think that leads into the business that you have now. Are you and in, in Orion partners in the business?
1: Yeah, yep. yeah, we're uh, we're even partners. And uh, you know, I bring the winemaking skills, but he brings a lot of the creativity and that out of the box thinking. You know, for example, when once we started with our first trial batches, we started wondering, like, I wonder how we could make a go of this. And at the same time, Orion went to a meeting at the conservation district that was discussing the challenges that people had been facing with bears and other wildlife, but mainly bears coming right into the residential neighborhood and eating the fruit, the fruit, these crab apples and other apples that were just falling on the ground and causing a big, a big challenge for uh, the biologists that are trying to manage wildlife and for the residents that were trying to go about their day-to-day business. And so Orion, this is one of the classic Orion ideas. He, he's like, Hey man, what if we wrote a grant to the, to the conservation district about uh, removing those bear attractants from the neighborhoods, and then we'll put them to a a good use of cider making and then eventually compost, or what we've we've learned since is makes great animal feed. The idea was we can take those apples, do something with them and then give them another second or even third life in the right place, all while putting some of the residents at ease who are living in these areas and ultimately uh, making an effort to keep those bears in a safe with a safe relationship with humans. And I, 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 he brought this idea to the table and I said, well, I don't know. It seems we, we should try it at least. And so he wrote a really great, simple grant proposal to the conservation district. And uh, all of that involved us picking the fruit and them compensating us for our efforts but only for a couple years because if we could develop a business that worked, then we would maintain the incentive to remove those apples in the future. And so for three years, we were able to harvest apples in the fall from all sorts of different neighborhoods around town and uh, get to know the local apple landscape and get to know the bear movement patterns and also get to know whether we thought we could make a go of a, a cidery that would be continue to pick the apples in perpetuity going forward and without installments of cash or anything like that. And you know it it worked out very well. We we discovered all sorts of trees all growing all sorts of different locations. We we saw bears move from one neighborhood to the to the next, uh, and then we would follow them and remove apples when they were sighted in different places. And so we realized that we were having an effect on them staying out of those neighborhoods where they, we wanted to keep them out. The side effect was we realized we need to pick all the fruit in the whole county. That's our, that became our new mandate to keep the, the possibility for human and wildlife conflict at a minimum. But also during those years, we were able to ferment and age some of these really unique and intensely flavored crab apples that to be honest, don't taste very good at the beginning. And they need a year in an oak barrel or, you know, they need to go through a secondary malolactic fermentation or or any number of steps that you can take to help change the chemistry of that acidic and astringent and bitter apple and and have it sort of morph into something that's more palatable. And so we were able to learn all that in the three years. And at the end of it, we we said to the conservation district, we're going to keep doing this. Uh, We've got we've got incentive. We've got the system, we've got permission from all the landowners. Well, not all of them, but a growing list of permission from landowners around the county. And uh, we want to take take the reins on it from here. And, and that's what we've done. And it's, I think, a project where there was creativity and a need all at the same time coming together that, that just, it was just the alignment of the stars that allowed us to get a glimpse and take a risk in working with these more unique, more Uh, Challenging fruits, which ultimately produce a a more unique and uh, and interesting cider, in my opinion.
0: That's fabulous. And um, well, well, let's start, Ian. You do need to. I do want you to share with everybody the name of your business. Oh, true. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also curious. From the first year, how many pounds or tons of fruit did you pick, and what were you thinking you were going to get versus what you ended up getting? And by the Third year, how many
1: pounds, tons did you pick? Man, I mean, it's a, okay, yeah. So first of all, we are called Farmstead Cider. Thank and we, we our original name was Bear Trap Cider Works because we were <laughs> doing this bear. But then we also, as a company, Farmstead Cider also is like Farmstead Gardens and Farmstead Education. We teach agriculturally based uh, gardening and culinary classes to Uh, students you know all of all ages in in town and so like through our farmstead education efforts we're able to you know bring in kids who maybe don't have access or experience with cooking uh, and give them an opportunity to see where the food is grown how it's how it's grown and how it gets to the plate how much work is involved in just making a lasagna you know even simple dishes and so we decided to go with farmstead because everyone has has a place and a farmstead is a place where where sort of everything is centralized you know let's say you've got a, a big ranch and you've got huge pastures and hay fields and forest and stream but for everything to make it into the world it comes back to the farmstead where it is you know then sort of put together and then presented to the world and I, I kind of think that everyone, even if you' got a community garden plot or a you know just a deck, has their own small farmstead. Um, that coupled with the fact that we were finding a lot of apple trees growing right next to old foundations with no building around. and mm-hmm. we realized that was an old farmstead, and the only thing standing is the tree, you know, and it's like this is this great history that could easily be forgotten because the buildings we built have fallen down, but the 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 things we left behind, like the apple trees are still thriving and, and and doing well that's my little kid screaming in the background i don't know if you perfect can hear her there, but, <laughs> um but yeah so so we went with farmstead to with the idea that it, it's a more encompassing uh story about food and about diversity about biodiversity and uh and about health and then using things that it maybe have been forgotten over over the years and so that was kind of our approach then and yeah, when we got our start harvesting, I think I can't remember exactly, but I think we picked in the range of 150 trees in some really specific areas that the bear biologists had let us know. These are like the these are the areas where where bears are on people's roofs, eating the apples out of the trees. When they no come kidding. out the front door, they look up and there's you know a bear on the roof eating apples. And we focused on those neighborhoods. <laughs> oh god, mainly gosh. up near Golf and Tennis. Yeah, super intense stories. And I even saw some of the. You know, the, the shingles on the roof had been peeled back from them getting up there. Pretty impressive how they can climb like that. But uh, So we focused on those areas first. And honestly, we, we picked a lot of the, these apples that were really bitter and not very apple flavored, and we didn't know what to do with them. So we composted them, or we gave them to the Hatterley Farm, and they fed them to their pigs. Uh, and things like that. We made sure to not send it to a landfill. And then we made cider with a bunch of the apples that we encountered that we thought would make a good cider. Well, hilariously enough, those bitter apples that don't have a real apple-y flavor, those are some of the most coveted varieties of apples in the United States, because if you go to old cider-making regions in Europe, all the apples dedicated to cider-making are bitter. They're these big, beautiful Mm -hmm. apples, and you bite into it, and it just dries your mouth out instantly and is an unpleasant experience to say the least. And, but only through that transformation, through fermentation, do you harness those tannins and use it as a way to balance and make something uh, taste more balanced on your, on your palate. And yeah, little did we know we were composting the best apples we were harvesting that first year. Um, lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. it's was like, it, you know, man, if only we could go back, but no, we had to learn that lesson the hard way. And then, you know, also learn how to harvest them more easily because picking crab apples one one with your hands is slow. So after the first year, we went in around two and we, I think we were able to do upwards of 250 trees but we were able to harvest way more yield off of those. And so we easily pulled off 10,000 pounds that second year of apples. Um, and we harvested them into these old salt lick buckets that the, the ranchers use. They, they put these big buckets out with a huge salt lick inside and the cows lick it uh-huh. completely down clean. And then they're just these big plastic tubs they, have, they, they take to the dump. And um, so we grabbed them. They're just big enough you can fill them and still lift them. And we use those as our harvesting buckets to this day. They're stackable, they're lightweight, they're really strong. And another, you know, thing that would otherwise go to the landfill we're able to divert and give a really helpful uh, use for it. And we don't have to buy those, that equipment as well. So we started using those and man, we were filling them up one by one around and I would just, we would just rate trees by the bucket. We're like, yeah, it's a four bucket. That one's probably a six bucket there. Um, and uh, we got to realize like, you know, we got pretty good at gauging how much fruit was on a tree. So an easy 10,000 pounds that second year. And then the third year we got a, a system in place online. It's called our Harvest Helper and it's on our website where anyone who has an apple tree and has the permission, can can grant the permission, they can go on there and sign up and that'll populate our map and then set us up for our harvest in the fall with your contact information and your location and any details that you want us, like if you want us to call before we come. And it makes our harvesting that much more streamlined. So once we put that in place and could reach out to the public and say, Hey, if you have a friend or a neighbor or yourself who wants their apple trees picked, just plug it into our our website. And our list grew, you know, upwards of 450 uh, different places after that. And our harvesting got streamlined and uh, we, we kind of figured out the seasonality with some varieties ripening at certain times and others taking another couple of weeks to fully ripen. We've learned a lot of that. And uh, we no longer weighed the fruit of that third year. We just did gallons of cider uh, that we produced, that we squeezed, um, because it was just, we were losing count every which way. And so I think that year we squeezed about 1,200 gallons of cider uh, in the one harvest. And, you know, that was, we felt like a huge accomplishment, but this past year we've doubled that. And I kind of feel like there's, as we explore farther away, like on the way to Rexburg, there's tons of apples, old hundred year old trees that have been growing in people's yards since they homesteaded there uh, with thousands of pounds of fruit on them. Uh, we've been, disca- and, and they're really unique, uh, interesting varieties. Like one of them is called a sub acid apple and it has no acidity. So you bite into it and it's not bright or flavorful or delicious in that sense. Like, this is a weird kind of insipid flavored apple. And it's it was red fleshed, so the juice was red. And we're like, this is so strange. Hmm. But we realized it's it's an old tree that was for making apple syrup, which was a a frontier form of sugar. Since getting sugar was expensive and maple trees didn't grow here, and sugarcane didn't grow here. Apples became that sugar source for a, a lot of the a lot of the people homesteading in this area. And What a cool tree to include in our ciders, especially because we produce so many crab apple ciders that are high acidity. We can blend it out with this other apple that has no acidity and has tons of other flavors involved. And so the more we expand and reach into our neighboring communities, it's, I I think we haven't even scratched the surface of how much fruit is really out there. So hopefully we can Mm -hmm. keep doubling. Yeah. And and now
0: you, you said that you have planted several hundred trees so with what you've planted and finding all these, is, is that sustainable for your model or, or how, are you, how are you planning for the future at this time?
1: It's a, it's a great question. I was up all night last night pretty much thinking about this because a new book came out recently uh, on the cider industry called American Cider, and they break down each region and, and the history of apples in that region. So I, of course, ordered a copy when I could get my hands on it and then couldn't put it down. So I was up really late last night thinking about all these things. But I, I'm really optimistic for the, the future because of the sustainability aspect of the whole project. We don't care what the apples look like in terms of their aesthetic value. If they have a wormhole in there, it's gonna get chopped up, squeezed, and, thro- and, and tossed in, the, in the, the livestock feed bin. And you realize that you know stems and seeds they all get incorporated into pretty much any wine you drink has been made in a similar way. I can't tell you how many yellow jackets and earwigs get lost in into wine. And then, of course, you ferment it and you, and you let it settle and you pull the juice off the top and you, and you filter it that way. But it's a very much it's very much a product from nature, full of all sorts of things. And in, in my winemaking days, I used to pull out geckos and snakes mm. from the, the bins of grapes because they just get in there somehow. And um, this one kid I knew would put a gecko on his head and then put his hat over the top. So it would come up because they couldn't move, they were so cold and they're cold blooded. So it's just so many funny, interesting lessons of what goes into the wine we drink. Um, and pretty much all the, all the food we eat has similar levels of nature still on it, especially organically produced uh, food. And so when we harvest our apples and we give them a rinse or we, you know, we 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 take, try to take out any that are rotting, but if they're if they're bruised or if they have a, a small blemish, that does doesn't stop us. And we don't have any incentive to spray any sorts of chemicals or any any kind of fungicide to protect the trees from those aesthetic damages. And I just find that the fact that we can use very little chemical or other inputs uh, and use a wide variety of apple flavors and varieties that 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 really lends itself to a bright future in sustainability and my my next big project with this is going to be to plant a much larger seedling orchard where we just take all the apple pulp and we put you know plop down piles of pulp in the layout of an orchard and let them grow and what happens is each seed produces a totally unique fruit from its parent. Most seeds we think of, you know, it comes from a vegetable that's shaped like this. And so you take the seeds and you plant it and you'll get a vegetable that's shaped like that. But with apples, they, they actually go the opposite. And they make sure that every single seed they produce is unique. And that's mm-hmm. their adaptability strategy. So if you plant a seedling orchard of 1,500 seedling trees, you will have 1500 different varieties of apple never seen before and never to be seen again. They may have some similarities to their parents, but they're not not the same by any means. And the the, the wonder of that is that you can discover new varieties that have new flavors or, or really good disease resistance or are extremely cold hardy. So for me, I think the future of our cider business is to promote the biodiversity of the apple and plant an orchard from seed, especially here where we have such an intense climate with so many unique features of our seasons, and produce trees that have the potential to be the baking apple in this climate, or the perfect juice apple, or the perfect cider apple, or eating apple, you name it. Any number of possibilities could come from an orchard like that. And by doing that, we'll be promoting the the resilient nature of the apple tree uh, in this climate in particular. So that's what I'm really excited about is is kind of sharing that wonderful diversity with the world and then producing a product that embraces all those all those aspects kind of at once.
0: Thank you for for what you guys are doing. This is awesome.
1: That is the main reason we're doing it is we like the process, but we like the interaction with the people here with our community and with the and the looking forward, the optimism that comes from them at all so it's a it's very fulfilling on, on lots of different levels
0: so ian i'm very curious to know do you have plans is there an opportunity for you to make a different type of cider
1: yeah oh that's a great question you know i i feel like the more i dive in the more layers of everything are exposed to me so i'm like whoa um for example you know we've had such a bountiful service berry harvest out in the in the wild last year and we were just so heads down picking apples that we didn't take advantage of the serviceberry crop that came last, last fall. But I think there's a whole spectrum of things that are either growing wild, like the serviceberry, or things that we can cultivate in our garden. I'm thinking of spices and herbs. I had a sage-infused cider. It was really incredible. I never would have thought the two would be a good marriage, but I was kind of blown away. And my sage grows I can't kill it here you know it's an incredible uh, herb perennial herb Uh, so that or i've been thinking of beets beet juice and beet sugar is a really big crop and agricultural output from the state of wyoming Uh, they grow these sugar beets in central and northern wyoming and all over i think that are just massive bigger than my head and they all go to the beet sugar industry. Well, you know, we grow really great heirloom beets that have high sugar contents, that bright flavor and a, a, a bright color and a really unique flavor. And so as we head down the, the path of uh, making varieties of ciders beyond just what we're harvesting, you know, in each neighborhood, I kind of think that, yeah, the we're going to keep experimenting and, and do different types of co-fermentation where we'll throw in some beet juice or, or, um, you know, infuse some sage and hops grow well here and hop ciders are doing uh, are really a a popular item as well. So there's a, there's a whole frontier on that front as well. We just want to perfect apple, apple fermentation first. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of learning on that front, but I feel like we're getting there. I love the creativity. Ian, I love
0: your story and what you and Orion are doing with farmstead uh, sellers and, you know, farmstead agriculture, you teach kids, if people want to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that, Ian?
1: Yeah, the, you know, since it's a, it's a small operation, if you call the number on the website, you'll get me directly. Uh, <laughs> and so my, my phone number there, or our, our email is info at farmsteadyo.com. And we are, we're really interested in looking to partner with some folks in the community that are interested in maybe having their land be kept in agriculture if it's already there or if if it's if you're a landowner and you and you want to see your your land put into agriculture we can help with some of the taxation that comes around with the different type of agricultural classification and i think we could come up with some really symbiotic ways to plant really unique and never before seen apple varieties in this county. So if, you're, if anyone is out there wants, has any interest in growing an orchard, just give me a call. I'm always willing to chat. Thank you for
0: the time that you've taken to spend with me today. And um, I've learned so much about who you are and, and what you're doing and the sustainability of farmstead. And I wish you and your partner all the best and look forward to seeing you grow this venture. Congratulations.
1: Well, thanks so much, Stefan. Yeah, really appreciate it.
0: To learn more about Ian and Farmstead Ciders, visit the thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 135. Thank you, everybody, for keeping this podcast on the air. My wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I really look forward to seeing you back next
1: week for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.